the other thing to say is that most of the evidence on supplementation says it's beneficial where there is deficiency, but there's a threshold effect, right? It's like if you're putting petrol in your car, there's a point at which you've got enough petrol and putting more petrol in isn't going to help. It's just going to either just spill out or cause problems in other parts of the system. So there is a threshold effect. And if you generally have a, if you've got a genuinely good diet, then it's unlikely that supplementation is going to be a huge boon for you. Welcome to the last episode and Christmas special of Live Well, Be Well with your host, Sarah Ann Macklin. Now to finish this with the Christmas finale, we recorded this podcast live at the Pavilion in Knightsbridge with our fantastic sponsors, Higher Dose. It was an absolute joy to be able to record this podcast live with all my fantastic Live Well, Be Well listeners. So thank you to everyone who came, if you are listening to this. It was an absolute joy to record with Kimberly Wilson, Chartered Psychologist, where we spoke about how to build a healthy brain. Now make sure you grab your notebooks because there are so many informative notes around how you can keep your mental health in check, especially during December, when many times it can feel quite overwhelming. Live Well, Be Well will be taking a short break until next year to give myself and everyone some time to have some rest and rejuvenation, which, as we all know, is so important for our mental health and to spend some time with my family. I wish you all a very Merry Christmas. And if you're missing the podcast, there are so many episodes to catch up on. So do have a look back through the previous seasons. And until next year, I wish you a Merry Christmas and a very happy and healthy New Year. Welcome everyone to the season finale of Live Well, Be Well season six. Firstly, Merry Christmas and thank you so much for all being here today. To start, I really want to thank our sponsors for today's episode because without them, this live event would not be possible. And until now, I've only been able to record this in isolation. So it's amazing not only to have a guest next to me to speak, but also to have everyone else here. So today's sponsors are a wellness brand called Higher Dose. Higher Dose was founded in 2016 by Katie and Lauren, female biohackers with a background in wellness and nutrition and finance startups who shared a vision for the future of wellness. They created the unique alchemy needed to kickstart an authentic feel-good movement powered by an advanced technology, which was not yet harnessed by the masses, infrared. The higher dose story began with retailing infrared heating systems to yoga studios. Then the opening of infrared sauna spa locations in NYC quickly followed. Such was the demand for the natural high a sauna experience can provide. Higher dose opened 12 locations, but when the pandemic hit, all locations closed. Katie and Lauren quickly recognized that the need to provide an at-home wellness solution creating the infrared sauna blanket. And further launches followed. The infrared PEMF mat and the infrared PEMF go mat, which is perfect for sitting on when working, which utilized 
pulsed electromagnet frequency to ground the body to the earth, helping reduce stress and anxiety. I have tried the infrared PEMF mat and I have to say it's amazing. I've also tried the infrared sauna blanket, which I love and it's helped me get through these really cold winters so far. And I'm not alone because alongside celebrities, including Gwyneth Paltrow, Miranda Kerr and Leonardo DiCaprio, they are all huge fans. And I'm also very excited about what Higher Dose have scheduled for 2022. This includes the infrared LED face mask and the copper body brush, which I can't wait to try. Higher Dose delivers the next level of self-care and who doesn't need that right now? We've very kindly been given a discount code. So please enter BeWell20 for a chance and a discount off yours. Head to the Higher Dose website for 20% off with the BeWell20 code. Head to higherdose.com and enter the code BeWell20 when you check out. Welcome, Kimberly, to the end of season six. Thank you, firstly, so much for being here. And I'm really excited today to talk about mental health. First of all, about nutrition, because you are a registered nutritionist, alongside many other things. You're also a chartered psychologist. You're also a podcast host. You're also an author of How to Build a Healthy Brain. And lastly, this is my favorite fact, you're a finalist on the Great British Bake Off. <laughs> Literally the thing, that's the only See? thing anyone ever cares about. It's like my favorite thing. <laughs> Very multi-talented. And you are a wealth of information, but also you deliver it in such a synced way that all of us can understand it really, really well. So I'm really excited to kind of get stuck in to how we a can look after our mental health. succinct now, okay. Can. Anyone who's listened to Kimberly before, and I know there's quite a few faces that have been to our talks before in this room will completely agree with me. This is why they're back. So. All right. Firstly, that was, you know, quite a few different areas that you've been involved in, but how did you get to where you are today? What is it about psychology and nutrition and building a healthy brain that kind of brought you here? Can you tell people a bit about your journey? Sure thing. It's really interesting, isn't it? When you say, well, how did you get here? And it, it always seems much more linear when you look back on it than it does actually when you're in it. Everything makes sense once you're through all the difficult parts. But essentially the very, very shorthand is that I started my clinical practice in prisons. So I did my initial trainings. I was working with children in children's charities, in schools and in after school clubs. And then I was working in prisons and, and kind of areas of London with fairly high levels of deprivation and then and so I was running the therapy service at what was then Europe's largest women's prison HMP Holloway and part of my role running the primary care mental health service was understanding risk and harm so essentially safety and security in the prison so I would have to sit with the governors and the safety governors and work out how to keep the women safe including safe from the people and safe from themselves. And I was there in around, so 
from about 2007 for five or six years. And so in 2002, a big paper was published in the UK by a charity which was then called the Institute for Brain and Behaviour, which was looking at improving nutrition in prisons in, in male offenders. And what they did was to, it was a placebo-controlled trial, randomised, double-blinded, which is considered the gold standard in terms of scientific research. You know, we've got a placebo, which is inert, it does nothing, and we've got the active arm. So it was fake pills versus vitamins, minerals, and omega-3 fatty acids. And they found that against placebo in these men, kind of violent young men, there was a 37% reduction in violence in the supplemented group. And then when I was working in prisons in 2010, there was a replication of essentially the same methodology in the Netherlands. So the Ministry of Justice in the Netherlands replicated this study. And in clinical research, replication is really important because if you show something once, that might just be you know, an artifact of that particular group or that particular set of researchers. You can't be sure that it's going to generalize into other populations. So replication is really important and especially replication in other sites around the world. And so they replicated this in 2010 in the Netherlands and found actually a bigger response because they found about 35% improvement in the active arm in the people getting the supplements, but also the people who were getting the placebo got worse. So the actual difference between the two groups was bigger than in the original trial. So you've got these two like huge responses to something as simple as improving nutrition through supplementation. So we're not overhauling people's diets. We're not getting people kind of doing workouts. We're just getting them up to baseline nutritional sufficiency and making them much less dangerous and much less violent. And I had wanted then, because it was kind of my job to keep people safe, to try to do something in Holloway. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> that didn't work. It's, it's incredibly <laughs> difficult. Whenever you're working in prisons, it's really about getting the right people on board. And it really depends on what governor you have. And, and it can be very, very tricky. So that didn't happen. But so when I stopped working in prisons, I, I tried to avoid saying left prison because people get confused. <laughs> when I stopped working in prison, Unshackled. <laughs> I decided that if I couldn't, at the very least, I could do what I could do is to do this for my own clients and patients. So to improve my knowledge and my understanding in, in the field in order to be able to advise people appropriately or to refer them on appropriately to services that might help them in getting the best out of therapy. Because one of the things about therapy, I'm not succinct at all, am I? So one of the things about therapy is that what we're trying to do is essentially change your brain. Therapy is a type of kind of non-invasive brain surgery, I say, because actually it's about shifting your neural networks. We're creating different pathways in your brain so that you have different thoughts and different behaviors. And so the analogy I use is of having, trying to grow new trees or new plants. And that doesn't work unless you've got good soil. And so it doesn't really make sense. You know, you, can't, you can have the best therapy in the world, but if you're underslept and if you're poorly nourished and if you're exhausted, then you're not going to, your brain doesn't even have the kind of basics it needs to build those new pathways. So the idea that people might be going into therapy, you know, sometimes having, eating only kind of two chocolate muffins in the last 48 hours or being awake till six that morning, it, you're never going to get what you need out of therapy if your brain isn't in the right condition in order to reap the benefits. So it's about bringing all of this information together, essentially to try to make the therapy that I offer as efficient and effective for my patients as possible. Just to go back to the prison thing really quickly, <laughs> this is what we did last time. 
do you think that will be implemented? Do you think it would be as simple as putting in some omega-3s into the diet? Because that's what you saw. That was the transition that you saw. Do you think that would be an effective change to help people within prison systems with their mental health? So all of the research that we have at the moment says yes. And some of this research goes back to the 70s. So we have some initial studies in the US, which found improvements Mm -hmm. in young offenders. We've got two studies in the UK now, one in the Netherlands and one in Singapore, all finding the same magnitude of effect, 37% reduction in violence. And this is the thing that we're not talking about people just kind of feeling a bit better. They're not going up to you and going, how violent do you feel today? What we're talking about is objective incidents of violence. So they go in onto the prison wing so that you have a, a long corridor of cells. And at the end of the corridor is the governor or the kind of wing officer's office. And they have a book where they have to record everything that happens. So every time someone barricades their cell or starts a fight or mouths off to the officer, it gets written down in the book. And it, what, so we weren't talking about, oh, just asking people how they felt. We were literally going through the book and counting the incidents of violent acts of violence. And so all of these studies show the same thing and the same magnitude of effect. And really what it, it seems to very simply be saying is, brains don't function very well if they're not well nourished. (laughs) Which seems like an incredibly obvious thing to say, but it's actually not something that we consider very much. And for all of the conversation that we have about mental health and people talking, having the mental health conversation and it's okay to not be okay, we manage somehow in a way that doesn't happen with physical health. If I were to talk to you about I don't know, you were saying, oh, you might say, oh, I've got high blood pressure or I'm having chest pains. I couldn't talk to you about those symptoms without talking about your heart, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. I can't talk to you about the function without talking about the organ. Yet we talk about mental health without talking about the brain. Do you see what I mean? Like we talk about depression and anxiety and, you know, confusion and brain fog without saying, Mm, I wonder what's happening in the brain. If these things are an emergent property of your brain, what is it telling me about the underlying function and health of the organ that is underlying all of these functions? And I think that's the part that's missing. I don't think we can have a sensible, reasonable conversation about mental health without including the brain. Completely agree. So let's go on to that. Let's go on to the brain. (laughs) 60% fat. Let's talk about why it's so important to eat (laughs) you know what I'm gonna say don't you (laughs) to eat essential fatty acids so omega-3s we have some that we can't get from our diet which is why they're essential but why are these so important for our brain this links really nicely with the studies done in the prison as well you know that's one of the things that they implemented why should we all be actually first of all before we go into that who here eats oily fish okay Wait, 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 keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. Who here eats it at least twice a week? Okay, so just for people on podcast live, we've got about, oh God, we've got about, yeah, we've got about half hand. No, no, they're all going down. We're really thinking about it now. Okay, we've got about third going up. Who here eats it once a week? Okay, so hands have gone back up. Okay, so we're about half the room full. Okay, right. And who, so who doesn't eat it at all? Okay, right. Okay, now we're going to go to why. All right, notepad set already, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so, so two things. Your brain is 
the most important organ in your body, right? We're all on board with that. And we're like, nah, <laughs> mine's rubbish. No, it really is. And then, but also your brain is the most complex organ. It's the most complex natural structure in the known universe. Like, it's pretty cool. It's really, really complicated. But the things that we do understand about it are that it's made of these fats that you, you can only really get in sufficient amounts through your diet. That's yeah, absolutely what you say, why they're called essential. And the thing about these omega-3 fatty acids is that they are structural fats. So they form part of the outer membrane of your brain. So the analogy that I like to use is if you think of your brain cells or your brain as a whole, as a house, one in every three bricks is made of omega-3 fatty acids. So they are literally the bricks that make up the membrane. And the thing about these fats is that they have really particular properties that make them flexible. They change shape very quickly and they make them very, very flexible, which is exactly what you need because your very, very hungry, very, very active brain is constantly taking things into the cell, putting things together, getting rid of you know, toxins and waste. And you need a flexible membrane for that crossover to be able to happen. If you don't have that, then you end up with a much more rigid membrane, which, you know, isn't really what you want because you need that ability for flow in and out of the cell. You also need DHA for cell signaling. So people talk a lot about, you know, serotonin and we understand something about serotonin being important for mood. So what happens with serotonin is you have the end of one nerve cell here and the end of another nerve cell here and the serotonin is released and it drifts across the synapse, the gap in between and connects here. But you need omega-3 fatty acids for this cell to have the right shape of receptor to catch the serotonin in the first place. So it almost doesn't matter, you know, I mean it does, but it matters to a greater degree that you have receptors that are the right shape to catch the serotonin because you could be flooded with serotonin. If it cannot dock with your receptor, you're not going to get the effect that you want. And so what we see in trials that alongside antidepressant medication, if you supply an omega-3, you get improvements in action by about 30% again because of this improvement in, in morphology of the receptor. But you also need omega-3s for the cell, the signaling, to, for it to move along the synapse. So all of these features, everything that your brain does from its structure to its signaling and a process called long-term potentiation, which is essentially just learning the way that the nerve gets reinforced and strengthened, the pathway that gets strengthened, all require omega-3 fatty acids. You have to get them through your diet. You don't have to stuff your face with fish. It's okay. Like one 140 gram serving of mackerel a week will do it. But most adults in the UK are getting about a third of the recommended servings per month, so about one serving every three or four weeks, and less than 5% of children in the UK are getting enough of omega, uh, enough oily fish to meet these requirements. And that's a big, mm. big concern because everybody sitting here, your brain is using about one in four of every calories that your body burns through. Your brain is the biggest portion of your metabolic activity. You know, it's really punching above its weight in terms of the energy expenditure and the amount of nutrients, therefore it needs to keep going. For children, that proportion is about 60% because their brain is that much a bigger part of their, their body. So children's brains, which are also constantly changing and you know they're learning all the time and much faster and more quickly than we are. It's a, a huge worry that children aren't getting these structural components of their brains. And in the book, I, I show you two side-by-side -side brain cells 
from a mouse, not from a child. Um, but uh, it, it demonstrates the difference between a, in this case, a mouse baby born of a mother who has sufficient DHA in her diet, so sufficient omega-3 fatty acid in her diet, and insufficient omega-3s. And the difference is 50% fewer connections these kind of nerve cell connections in the pup whose mother didn't have enough omega-3 in her diet. So if we're thinking about the structural integrity, because people, you know, we're suddenly seeing more children with developmental disorders, with behavioral problems, with externalizing behaviors in schools, a greater number of children and young people with depression, a tripling in the number of people attending A&E for psychological concerns. So we're seeing this huge rise in young people whose brains should be at their healthiest, really. You know, you should be enjoying your life as much as possible and feeling as good as possible. You don't have to pay bills yet. You don't have to, you know, all of that stuff. Yet we're seeing this huge vulnerability in young people's mental health. And yes, some of that is about environment. There, there are more challenges in terms of social comparison and technology. But there's a big question, certainly for me, about the basic structural integrity. You know, it's if you go into a storm with a house that's fully boarded up and, and looking good, that's quite different from going into a storm with a house that has bricks missing. So I think this, this is really what we're talking about. It's, I mean, it's a huge passion for both of us, Omega-3s. <laughs> I feel like we could talk about it for hours on end. Um, but so many people, especially in, in clinic, when they come and see me as well, there's a lot of worry around the ethical side of eating fish, which is obviously a completely different conversation to what we're obviously having, which is about the fundamentals of understanding it for the brain and your health overall. However, if people are vegan or are worried, obviously, to eat it for ethical reasons, what would you suggest? So that would, I would pretty much be saying that you need to be thinking about an algae-based DHA supplement. So if you don't eat it, don't like the taste of it, for ethical reasons, moral reasons, allergic to it, these are essential fats and, and they're really essential, not just for the brain, but for the whole body, but really this is what your brain is made of. Your body cannot make it. So you have to be finding another way through the diet to get it. So an algae-based source where you're looking at around 500 milligrams combined of EPA and DHA as a minimum. That's where I'm, I would always, I would, I think it technically should be higher, but. Um, <laughs> you said that off mic. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, as a minimum. So on the back of your packet, and, it, and it's important to be careful about that because often on the back of supplements, it will say 500 milligrams per serving, but you need take, to take six pills for it to be a serving. And if you don't realize that, then you're just you know taking one a day and still not getting a dose that's going to be helpful for you. So an algae-based source, because the algae is where the fish get it in the first place and not a source that you know, other vegan sources of omega-3 are things like flax seeds and chia seeds and walnuts. That type of omega-3, it's called ALA, cannot be converted in sufficient amounts into the form that your brain needs, which is DHA and EPA. So the ALA-based omega-3s, your plant-based ones, aren't really giving you the bang for your buck. And it's really about the algae-based sources, the DHA, and it will say on the back of the pack. Take a note, guys, the ones that aren't eating fish. <laughs> really important. And it is important because we know so many trials and studies have been linked to fish consumption and things, you know, such as 
anxiety and depression and inflammation. There's a whole load of things of research that's going on Even right now. suicidal ideation is reduced in people with higher... Suicide ideation? Su- suicidal ideation, so thoughts of suicide oh, wow, intent okay. is reduced in people with higher intakes and higher blood levels of omega-3 fatty acids. And, I mean, that's a correlation, but really what we're thinking about, what might be the kind of plausible mechanism underneath that is that your brain is functioning more optimally. Mm-hmm. Those receptors are of a good morphology that you can you know, connect with those neurotransmitters that are helping you to feel better so yeah it's kind of it's really important <laughs> if you take one thing away <laughs> from this Let's go on to what foods are good for the brains we've obviously got omega-3 fatty fish and by the way just putting out that, that that's salmon mackerel sardines kippers herring trout, trout anchovies mussels clams yes there we go. Not the white fish. Now, there's been lots of trials, even the SMILES trial, which is one of the first ones to show the good links between a good diet, good balanced diet and, and improved mental well-being. What are some of the key foods that people need to be like looking out for when they're going to the supermarket thinking, OK, I've just listened to Kimberly talk about the importance <laughs> of mental health. What the hell am I going to buy? Where would you direct everyone in this room to first start looking? Okay, so and I guess it's the, the caveat. What we're saying is really uh, the associates improved brain health. So no one's saying that if you've got a clinical depression, that just changing your diet is going to fix it. I don't want to kind of give that impression, but we're really thinking about in the same way that taking care of your diet is going to help reduce your risk of heart disease and reduce your risk of certain cancers. We're thinking about risk reduction in terms of psychological and mental health concerns. And actually, saying that you always say really good fat, and you haven't said it today, the dementia fat. Oh, I'm full of dementia facts. About, well, a lot of people think oh, cardiovascular disease is the biggest killer, but it, it's not. No, actually, the biggest killer in the UK is, Alzheimer's, is dementia and Alzheimer's disease. So, you know, we often we hear a lot about heart disease and cancer and diabetes and the side effects and, and kind of downstream effects of higher body weight. Actually, the thing and this is the thing across the lifespan. So after accidents, the leading cause of death in young people is suicide. And the thing that's the leading cause of disability globally for adults is depression. And then in old age, the leading cause of death is dementia. So all of the things that are causing us the most disability and disease and death are actually brain related. And yet we're not having a conversation about how to look after your brain. We get told not to smoke and we tell children to brush their teeth so that they don't get caries. You know, we talk about prevention for physical health, but we don't talk about prevention for mental health. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. So nutrition is part of a a broader kind of lifestyle approach to mental health prevention, which is really where we need to be going because we know even though it's our biggest killer, we don't have any effective cures or treatments for dementia. You know, there was a very controversial drug was just, okay, well, drug that was licensed in the US for dementia had actually it was a secondary analysis by the this is boring but essentially the panel that the fda got together of scientists to say shall we license this drug all said no it doesn't have enough efficacy against its risks which include brain swelling for it to be a helpful drug but the thing is because it's such a huge 
pressing issue and a growing issue. And we're so desperate for good news about Alzheimer's disease and dementia that there was a sense in which this drug was pushed through. But actually, in real terms, we're thinking about brain health, we're thinking about prevention, and we're thinking about a long game. Because even though, you know, dementia will be, and I think about dementia in terms of it's a very good model for brain aging. So it's not just, will I get this disease? It's actually, what it tells us is the, the things that make our brains age much more quickly are very well modeled by Alzheimer's disease. So whenever I say Alzheimer's or dementia, just think brain aging. And so even though your symptoms will be will appear in say your 60s or 70s, actually the early damage is visible in brain scans up to two decades before that. So we're really thinking, certainly by midlife, by 35, 40, you need to be on it. And women in particular, because women have twice the risk of Alzheimer's as men. So really building in that resilience, building in that strength, you know, really getting that kind of pension plan for your brain, as I call it, locked down mm. as early as possible so that if you are unfortunate enough to have a higher risk or to develop it, actually you've got a much stronger base to start with in the beginning. So what do we need to be buying? So if you're eating your, your oily fish twice a week, as you all will be after this. <laughs> so the next groups of foods really are your leafy green vegetables. So there's just a huge range of you know, plant compounds and vitamins and minerals in leafy green vegetables that have been shown to slow the rates of brain aging in people who consume them on a regular basis. And again, not much, it can be a handful, like a small side bowl's worth. In one study looking at older people found a reduced rate of brain aging of 11 years compared to older people who weren't eating them as frequently. So, and you know, fit them in where you can, whether it's throwing it into a smoothie, smoothie, uh, throwing it into a smoothie, a side salad, adding a handful of spinach to a sandwich, even if it's a shop-bought sandwich, you know, buy a packet of greens and just wedge that in. I like stir-frying them with eggs. Stir-fry them with eggs. Yeah. So just all the ways to get them in. Making green rice, so like chopping up spinach and putting that in your rice if you're cooking rice, throwing in frozen spinach into your pasta, whatever. Leafy green vegetables are a kind of you want to look daily for that, if possible. Brightly coloured vegetables, so really your berries, so strawberries, blueberries, blackberries, black currants, elderberries. Um, those brightly coloured fruits and vegetables, they have a really, really impressive effect on your epithelial cells or your kind of your blood vessels and if you think about I've said that your brain is the hungriest most active organ in your body it needs a very strong blood supply to bring oxygen to bring nutrients to bring glucose and so what happens when you eat these brightly colored fruits and vegetables and this is why people are always banging on about blueberries but black currants and blackberries are also really you know and deeply colored vegetable fruits and vegetables what they do is to turn on an enzyme that produces a compound called nitric oxide which helps your blood vessels to relax which improves the amount of blood flowing through your brain so in studies where they've looked at short-term interventions so you're about to do an exam or to give a talk and i'm going to give you 200 grams of blueberries and then i'm going to sit you down say in front of a very what's called a cognitively fatiguing task, you are going to perform better and be able to sustain your, sustain your attention much better than I would if I hadn't eaten it. And so you get improvements in information processing, in working memory, in short-term memory, through, we think, through this impro improved perfusion. You also get that with very dark chocolate. 
sound like my dessert in the evenings, blueberries and dark chocolate. And some kind of some citrus fruits as well. So they've done studies on, I'm not sure how commercially available they are, but kind of getting those citrus fruits in as well. So brightly coloured fruits and vegetables, especially your berries a few times a week. Nuts and seeds, so unroasted, raw, unsalted nuts, because they are a, full of lots of minerals, and your brain needs minerals, but also lots of good essential fats. And then fibre, guys. <laughs> you were taking me straight into my next question, which is just perfect. <laughs> because one of, the, one of the mechanisms through which we think your brain suffers, particularly in things like depression, is a process called inflammation, which is the kind of in the acute phase, it's fine. So when you get sick or you get a cut, when you're recovering from a virus or a cold, something like that, acute inflammation is fine. It's necessary. It's what keeps you alive. But in the long term, chronic inflammation, essentially what happens is that it's a kind of biological confusion and it can start, your immune system stays elevated for too long and then it can start to damage your body's own healthy tissues. And what can happen is that inflammation can kind of cross over, trigger inflammation, uh, cross over the blood brain barrier, trigger inflammation, inflammation in the brain and then you've got neuroinflammation which we do not want like you don't want you don't want your brain on fire like, like that, that is not where we want to be and the thing about fiber is that it's the number one food for your gut microbiome and your gut microbiome is one of the main areas of mitigating and managing inflammation in your body because about 70 percent of your immune cells are in and around your gut and keeping a healthy gut microbiome by feeding it plenty of fiber so whole grains your brown rice your brown pasta lots of lentils you basically can't get enough fiber unless you eat beans and lentils on a regular basis. So hummus and lentils and all of those things, dals, all of that, essentially stops your gut microbiome from getting hungry, which stops them from eating through in the prote protective gel layer in your gut, which stops the gut wall from getting damaged and opening up, which stops the bacteria from crossing over into the bloodstream where they shouldn't be and the immune system goes insane. Can you explain what fibre is to everyone? Because sometimes we use this buzzword and I think sometimes not everyone really understands the context of what fibre is. So what is fibre? So fiber is a form of carbohydrate which resists digestion. It cannot be like broken down and pulled apart by your body, but goes on to be fermented and broken down in your gut. And what's really lovely about your gut microbiome, and lots of people will know a lot more about it now, the gut is really having a bit of a renaissance, um, is that they're not just squatters, like they're not just there like hanging out and stealing your food. They're actually earning your their keep by, you know, they pay their rent by producing vitamins and minerals for you. They pay their rent by producing precursors to neurotransmitters. So they produce some neurotransmitters, serotonin, which is used for gut motility, but also precursors to neurotransmitters in the brain. Um, they produce compounds that are very, very similar to mood stabilizing drugs that are given on prescription. They're, they're a little chemical factory and we just, just, just be a good host, really, is what we're saying. <laughs> like, just put out some snacks, <laughs> make sure they're well fed to keep them happy and everything will be fine <laughs> who thinks they eat enough fiber in this room doing lots of polls here okay so we've got nearly three about three quarters of the room here how much fiber should we be getting a day because i know we're not getting enough no and and if that if that's true then this is a disproportionately fibrous do group very healthy <laughs> live well be well community going on here because we should be aiming for at least 30 grams per day. A lot of 
gastro experts would say it should be higher we should be aiming for 50 grams per day in our evolutionary history would have been we would have been hitting somewhere between 100 and 300 grams per day but most of the adults in the UK are getting somewhere around 13 grams per day so most people really aren't and and when I say you need to get beans in like really beans are the beans will nudge you over the top it's quite difficult if you're just saying oh I'll have a wholemeal sandwich and maybe I'll have some you know greens that's probably not going to do it it's about mm. getting in the legumes and it's about getting diversity isn't it this Absolutely. is a really important part that i think we see as nutritionists is people come in and think they're eating a wide variety of fiber but actually there's about five things that they like we all like routine and i'm the same but they stick to these five foods mm. and actually that's not that great for your guts. More about the diversity, as Tim Spector speaks about. If anyone hasn't read his book called The Diet Myth, you definitely should. But why is diversity so important, Kimberly? Essentially, we don't know a huge amount about the gut microbiome. We know maybe 1% possibly of, of what it does and its, its real functions. But what we do think we know is that diversity is associated with better overall health. And you improve that diversity by eating a diverse range. It's like each population likes their own particular type of fiber. So you've got to keep providing it with a range of fibers to keep everybody happy. If you're only eating one type of fiber, you might end up with a kind of overpopulation of one type of bacteria or microbe. And even if it's if that microbe isn't hostile, in, if it's kept in its normal balance, if it gets a little bit territorial, then it can cause a bit of a problem. So really it's about a broad range of fibres and plant foods, herbs and spices. So literally adding a pinch of mixed spice to your porridge increases the diversity of plants that you're getting in and that's going to be helpful. So you don't have to, again, when I'm not talking about like ploughing through like bowls and bowls of raw vegetables. Like just adding spices to your foods is going to help improve that diversity as well. And then trying to get in some additional sources of fibre is going to be really helpful. And if anyone goes away now and just goes, I'm going to eat loads of fiber, <laughs> have loads of water. Yeah, go carefully. Yeah, that's the other thing. Like, start slow. Because <laughs> Kimberly, what happens you, if you don't? <laughs> you need to give you. But it's a bit, it goes a bit like Mardi Gras. Like everyone just gets a bit <laughs> overexcited. And obviously, of course, like part of the the side effect or the the one of the metabolites is gas. So you just want to give your gut a little bit of time to adjust. So increase slowly. This is one of the things that happen when people think, oh, maybe I'll just buy a fiber supplement and then suddenly they're really bloated and uncomfortable and they think it must be bad for me. No, it's probably just that you've done it a bit too quickly. Mm -hmm. So yeah, just build up slowly, increase a little bit at a time, give your gut a little time to adjust and also don't worry about farting, it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) So can we talk about alcohol (laughs) (laughs) so we're doing a talk on mental health we're both sat here with wine how well I say this because we're coming into the festive season and we have to be realistic that most of us are going to be maybe drinking a bit more going out a bit more which obviously consumes alcohol now how bad I feel like you're going to be better than mine because you've got red wine and I've got white wine how bad is alcohol for our mental health or for our brain is there any positives it's a bit of a controversial area at the moment a lot of the epidemiology so looking at big groups of people over a long period of time trying to make a fairly as accurate an estimate as possible of their intake over time and their brain health outcomes says there's a small amount of alcohol 
And it's probably more likely to be locally produced red wine than Polish brandy <laughs> is associated with reduced risks of dementia. Other studies, more recent studies have said, actually, I don't think that, you know, there's no safe level of alcohol. And I think that's still kind of being fought out in the literature a little bit. When the studies that say a small amount of red wine, I need to tell you how small they mean. <laughs> I'm really sorry. How much compared Please. to your glass, Kimberly? <laughs> it's don't shoot the messenger. I that's this even that's too big. So you know, have you ever had a cortado in a coffee shop? Yeah, I'm serious. It's About half of that. We're talking about <laughs> laughing. It's like that's not a drink. Like, it's, it's about kind of 55, 75 mils is is the amount that seems to be associated with better health outcomes. And that would that seems plausible, I think, because that's probably the amount at, at which the polyphenols, the brightly colored compounds, probably outweigh the alcohol and the detrimental effects of alcohol on the brain. So not much. Okay, <laughs> so we're shotting a glass of wine a night and that's, that's it, that's all we're allowed. The best resource that I have read recently on this is actually Dr. David Nutt's book, Drink. And really, it's, it's really funny. So he was the um, the kind of drug czar for the government about 20 years ago. And he was saying, we should legalize marijuana. It's not as dangerous as alcohol. It's not as dangerous as cigarettes. This is just silly. And he was fired for that. But what he proposes, because his daughter runs a wine bar, is that we take a really a measured and informed consent approach to alcohol. So understanding that alcohol is, well, and particularly at this time of year, is absolutely ubiquitous in our society. Especially if you're working with people who are trying to cut down or, or stop drinking, you suddenly realise how much alcohol is everywhere. Advertise, you can't, you can walk into, the, sometimes the fish counter is like, oh, you can have some fish and also here is some wine. And you're like, I just <laughs> wanted to buy some fish. So first choice was the right one. Exactly. <laughs> so really trying to find the balance Probably most people don't need to drink as much as they do. Making sure you're drink, you you're mixing up your drinks with water or soft drinks in between, staying as well hydrated as possible, and just you know, because understanding that we do have a society where drinking is common, and where it can be kind of uncommon and weird to not drink. That's another thing to say. If someone, if you offer someone an alcoholic drink and they decline. It's no big deal. <laughs> just leave them to it. It's like don't ask and don't say. Oh, I just. It's fine. If someone declined a cigarette, you'd say, OK, no problem. We kind of need to kind of change our attitude towards drinking. But if you're going to drink, probably red wine is better, but probably not very much. But also, please don't look at alcohol as a health food. <laughs> and can you explain why? I feel like many people might feel this, but when you do drink, why do you feel more anxious or more low the next day? Because I think lots of people feel that, but we don't actually understand why we're feeling that. I think you need to understand that alcohol is a drug and it's a drug that affects almost all of the major neurotransmitter systems in the brain, serotonin, dopamine, epinephrine. It, it affects everything and therefore it's going to combine with your own unique chemical composition. For some people, that's okay. And again, so for some people, it depends on what kind of alcohol you're drinking. But for some people, that's really going to unbalance 
the normal chemicals that keep them feeling okay. And again, that becomes a decision about whether it's worth it. Are the drinks that, that you have the night worth two days of anxiety? You know, and that's a, an individual call that people need to make. But obviously don't feel bad about not drinking if it's better for your mental health. Like, that's a sensible decision to make for your well-being. Coffee. Mm. Similar to alcohol in the sense of that it can obviously change how you feel and it can be changing your mood and your emotions. Is it good for us or is it bad for us? It is much better news about coffee, everybody. Who's <laughs> a coffee drinker of... in this room? I'm loving the polls because I ne <laughs> never get to see people when I'm doing a podcast. The okay, so we've got about belief. three quarters of the room that have coffee. So, and actually there have been two new studies out on tea and coffee in the last two weeks. And they have they really corroborate what we've seen really for a long time, which is up to a point, and that point... <laughs> seems to be somewhere around three to five drinks or three to five coffees but up to a point coffee is neuroprotective so I mean it depends on what else you're putting in it <laughs> like like the brandy probably is <laughs> less helpful but if you think about it first of all coffee is a whole food also it's actually a polyphenol rich food it's a bean that is fermented roasted and then ground and it's actually really high in a range of, of polyphenols so it's up there it, when i was talking about those brightly colored fruits and vegetables it's up there in that camp so in general coffee and chocolate sit in the same camp in terms of polyphenols and coffee caffeine releases uh, helps to upregulate an enzyme that helps to protect the brain against dementia so if you're a coffee drinker but also, as long as it doesn't make you particularly like sensitive or right? if you're the person who's sensitive to coffee, then you're less likely to get the benefits. But if you're someone who can drink coffee, enjoys coffee, do not worry about coffee. Coffee is your friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great news. Very happy about that. So I want to talk to you a little bit about supplementation. I'm going to do another poll because I'm really enjoying it. <laughs> who is taking vitamin D here? <laughs> I think that was nearly everyone, maybe oh, not so, everyone. I'm, I'm so happy. <laughs> Thank you so Made much. Kimberly's night. <laughs> so Why happy. is vitamin D so important for our mental health? Well, we're only really scratching the surface. Well, you know it's important when the NHS gets around to recommending it. <laughs> You're like, oh, okay. <laughs> this must be really, really serious. So the NHS recommends that everybody certainly in the winter months, should be supplementing with vitamin D. And those of us with dark skin should be supplementing year-round, essentially. And what's really emerging is this understanding. So vitamin D really functions in the in the body as a, like a steroid hormone, which is of the same class as testosterone and estrogen. They're not the same effects, but the same class of chemical in the body. And so if you would be concerned about your estrogen being low or your testosterone being low, you should also be thinking, hmm, maybe my vitamin D shouldn't be too low either. But there's kind of evidence emerging that vitamin D is a neurosteroid, that it's particularly important in terms of development of areas of the brain and under that kind of in particular areas of the brain that are associated with dopamine. So theoretically, and I'm, I am slightly speculating here, but theoretically there might be a, an association between say low levels of maternal vitamin D and increased incidence of ADHD in children because ADHD seems to be associated with the dopaminergic systems in the brain. But whatever. Vitamin D is important for normal brain function. It's also really important for normal immunological function. 
And so making, and we come back to inflammation, which is an immune response, making sure you've got adequate vitamin D is really just helping these really important processes to work well. And that's why it's a real problem outside of this room, the very low levels of vitamin D intake that we have in the UK. And I guess I really wanna make a case for those of us with dark skin and, and particularly people who are black, Asian, South Asian and who are culturally vegetarian because it's incredibly difficult to get enough vitamin D anyway just through the diet. Usually, essentially, it's supplemented through sunlight. But those of us with dark skin aren't able to synthesize as much vitamin D through sunlight. So those of us with dark skin who aren't eating oily fish and vitamin D containing foods or vitamin D fortified foods simply aren't going to be able to get enough vitamin D. And that works back in equatorial areas where there's lots of sunlight because then you're getting enough sunshine to, to create that vitamin D. But in high altitude areas like the UK and, and Northern Europe, it's just not going to happen. And so there is an epidemic of really low vitamin D status in the, in the UK South Asian community. I couldn't find information on the black community, but I would assume it's the same if those people are kind of culturally vegetarian or don't eat very much meat or oily fish. So really want to kind of get that across that some of the kind of cultural dietetic habits that work well in our countries of origin or a kind of historical countries of origin might not work in in a UK latitude and so you really need to be aware of that. You all have vitamin D sprays in your goodie bag, <laughs> just to let you know. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so you can all supplement with it when you leave. But staying on supplements just before we go to kind of the next section of emotions, not all supplements are best for us. And sometimes we see lots of health fads and words, buzzwords like antioxidants, which help source these free radicals, as in kind of consuming these will make you feel better and live better and live longer and feel happier. Why is this not always the case? You've actually written a really great part about this in your book. But I think it's really important to kind of show both sides that some supplements like omega-3, if you're not gaining it from fish and vitamin D, where we can't physically gain it from our diet, we have to gain it from the sun, are essential. But why are certain ones not maybe good for our health, like too much of an antioxidant? Sure. And I guess the, the other thing to say is that most of the evidence on supplementation says it's beneficial where there is deficiency, but there's a threshold effect, right? It's like if you're putting petrol in your car, there's a point at which you've got enough petrol and putting more <laughs> petrol in isn't going to help. It's just going to either just spill out or cause problems in other parts of the system. So there is a threshold effect. And if you generally have a, if you've got a genuinely good diet, then it's unlikely that supplementation is gonna be a huge boon for you. But the other thing is, and in particular around antioxidants, and maybe I want to say 10 years ago, there was a huge interest in antioxidants around the kind of antioxidant or oxidant free radical theory of aging. So the idea was that free radicals, which are these kind of hyperactive particles of oxygen, damage your DNA and it's DNA damage that accumulates that leads to aging and none of us want to get old or die. So we need to prevent that as much as possible. And so the decision or the idea was, well, let's just pump ourselves full of antioxidants, which neutralize those reactive oxygen species. And then we'll just never get old. <laughs> Right? <laughs> That's gonna work. And there are a few problems with that theory. And one, well, the big problem 
and it's worth kind of maybe going through the example. So the idea was, and so they put this to clinical trial. The idea was, well, where there is a case where someone is producing or generating more oxidants, then they're going to age more quickly and they're going to get more DNA damage, so they're going to get more cancer. So actually smokers are a really good class of people to look at because smoking creates more oxidants and more oxidative species. And so maybe if we can give antioxidants to smokers, we can reduce their risk of cancer, right? Because we're neutralizing the damage that's done for, that comes from, from cigarette smoking. So that was the theory. And actually, this is kind of one of the most controversial pieces of research it's called the CARAT study, C-A-R-A-T, where they supplied groups of smokers, placebo control, control, control trial, groups of smokers with high doses of vitamin A. And they had to halt the trial early because actually it greatly increased the number of tumours people developed and the speed at which they grew. And what they realised was that actually oxidants aren't all bad. They're just, they're not bad wholesale. Actually, they're really important signalling molecules for your own immune system. So when your body produces reactive oxidant species, it's picked up by your immune cells and they come in and take care of what's happening. And they come in and kind of break down that, you know, faulty cell that might go on to become cancer. But when you're supplementing with very, very high doses of antioxidants, you knock out that system. Your own innate immune system doesn't get the signal that something's wrong and these cancers began to grow completely unchecked. So it's not as simple as thinking, well, like we understand how this entire process works. So let's just take on as many oxidants as possible, antioxidants as possible. I can't think of a really a good reason why most people, healthy people, would be taking doses of antioxidants. Get your antioxidants through your food because that's the way we evolved to take it in, synthesize it, break it down, understand it, balance it, and metabolize it. Lots of very high dose exogenous antioxidants, we don't know what effect they're gonna have in the body and certainly in smokers, it was quite quite negative outcomes and which persisted for years afterwards. The risk, the elevated risk for those people persisted at least six years afterwards, the, after the end of the trial. And this is the thing, I think we probably hear about these quite a lot because we're in that field, but the general population don't hear about these trials that actually kind of end in disaster. So I would say it's actually really important that before you go and buy loads of supplements check in with somebody like a nutritionist or a dietitian because sometimes they might be doing more harm than good and food is first that's why it's always so important to have a good balanced diet so we've kind of now going on to a really i've scared you important <laughs> what to have for dinner i'm sorry <laughs> i really want to talk to you about emotions okay. to wrap this up because you're very good at talking about this. Well, you have to be, you're a child psychologist. <laughs> but it, I think a lot of us get scared about talking about emotions, especially in the last couple of years where we've kind of been flipped into a world quite unexplainable. Many of us have, might have gone through a variety of different emotions. And I think we have a very British culture, tell me if you're with me, maybe I'll do another poll, of blocking out the ones that we don't want to acknowledge. I mean, I will definitely do that. I feel sorry for sadness. <laughs> yeah, but even things like anger, sometimes you can feel anger and you, it's oh, quite hard to anger. get it out. You said this to me before and it completely threw me. You're like, anger is a great emotion. Anger is my and favorite. And you're taught as when you're younger that anger is like, a, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be angry. Get a grip of yourself. But what, why is it so important 
that we are aware of these emotions and aware of how we feel. Why is it so important for our mental health? Okay, I'm going to try and keep this to three. So first of all, emotional health is mental health. In as far as if you came in to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist and I was trying to make an assessment of your well-being, I would be looking at well, how, how sad is she? Is he laughing in the appropriate places or is this inappropriate laughter? Are they describing a very sad thing with no affect at all? Actually, looking at your emotions is my signal as to how well you're functioning mentally. So emotional health is mental health. And therefore, trying to shut down one of your emotions is, is trying to kind of cut off some of your access to your own emotional health, to your own mental health. The other thing to really understand is that your emotions are anchored in your body. They are absolutely part of your body. They're not up here. It's not neck up. It's a full body experience. And what I mean by that is that if you were to tell me that you were nervous for some reason, what you would really be telling me is that you are having a physiological sensation whether it's your heart beating, knots in your stomach, whatever nervousness is for you, that was being recognized by your brain. Your brain was making an interpretation of what that those sensations mean in the context that you're in, right? So a butterflies in your stomach in this context might mean you're nervous about speaking. Butterflies in your stomach on a date might mean that you're anticipating a good night. Butterflies in your stomach over in Winter Wonderland might be, mean that you don't like being on this ride. So it's actually about the interpretation your brain makes of your bodily sensations in the context that you're in, and that's related to the concepts that you're told. So emotions are really important because they tell you a little bit about what's happening in your body, and that's quite quite helpful. But also because they are a signal of what else is happening to you. So for example, one of the reasons that I really love anger is that for me, I think anger is a signal of injustice, right? It's a signal usually of boundaries that are being broken or of something unjust that you're experiencing or unjust that you're seeing. So you might walk past someone having a horrible argument in the street and get angry because you think it's unfair about how someone is being treated. Or I might get angry when someone stands in front of me in the queue when I've been standing there for half an hour because it's unfair that I'm playing along with the social rules and they're not. And so anger is a signal of injustice. And if you cannot access your anger, quite often what happens is that you can't recognize in yourself when you're not being treated fairly. Right, does that make sense? So uh, what often I will see is often, ver very often women, because we're very much socialized into being nice and quiet and passive and just, you know, it's okay, it's all right. And I see so many women who are so cut off from their anger that they don't realize that they're being treated like crap. <laughs> And if you cannot access your anger, then you cannot then stand up for yourself because you haven't recognized that you're being treated unfairly. So your emotions are a signal to how you're being treated or where you are in the world. And if you cut yourself off from them, then you're cutting yourself off from some really important information. So that's why I think ang uh, emotions are great and anger is the best. <laughs> so. I think we'll we all agree with that in this room. <laughs> and so talk to me about positive thinking because I'm going to do a poll. <laughs> okay. I'm going to drink wine. How many people here have been told just to think positively about a situation and have a positive mindset? Okay. How many of you believe that's true? <laughs> 
just for people listening to the podcast, we had nearly made the rim up and then half of the hands went down. Kimberly. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I think there's a little bit of nuance to be had here. And so I'm going to make a distinction between what I call toxic positivity and realistic optimism. Okay. And so toxic positivity, I think, is very often not very far away from denial. (laughs) So it's the kind of thing where you say, I don't know, like if I've just been broken up with, oh, don't worry, you'll find someone else. (laughs) It's okay, you'll be fine. When you lose someone, actually it has an effect on your immune system. Something is happening to you physiologically on a nervous system level. You can't just pretend it doesn't. So I think often toxic positivity for me it's too close to denial and delusion to be a very helpful way of seeing the world or of interacting with it and certainly when you come up against someone who's kind of treats you like that you just feel dismissed like and not taken very seriously and that just compounds the problem whereas realistic optimism i think is a balance between the two it's a balance between seeing how bad things are so if we'll use the same example so if i've been broken up with i'm so sorry it's awful you must feel horrible what do you need right now mm-hmm. allow your body to process what's happening there and then also being able to say but at least we had these good times or at least i now know what's good for me or at least i didn't end up in a marriage that was miserable for years and years like i think at least is often a very good sign of kind of realistic optimism. It's like, okay, here's a reality, but at least this other terrible thing didn't happen, or at least this is what I took from it. Here are the positives. And then what can I learn from this? What can I take from this experience? So not to pretend that it wasn't bad, not to pretend that it doesn't hurt, not doesn't, not to pretend that it didn't perhaps damage you, if even if every temporarily, but what can I learn from it? What were the good parts of it? And sometimes it takes a while to get there. You can't, in the midst of a breakdown, be like, it's gonna be okay in five years. (laughs) It can take a while to get there. But realistic optimism says, where I am right now is not nice, but I won't be here forever. And there is something about this experience that I can take forward with me. And I think that's just a much more realistic and helpful approach to things and just being like, good vibes only, everything's great. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's so true. I like, but I do like the good vibes only at the same time. Um, So takeaways from this, for everyone listening, if they're gonna leave and they're like, right, I'm gonna start executing how to really look after my mental health throughout one of the busiest busiest periods of the year. How can they realize when they're overwhelmed or stressed? How can they activate their emotions in a positive way? So I am going to make an appeal for, it's really interesting. I did a a post on my Instagram a little while ago, a week or so ago. It was a post from somebody else. And the statement was, sometimes self-care is canceling plans with no apology, no lengthy explanation. And I said, do you agree or disagree? And most people are like 90% of people agreed and I disagree and the reason I disagree is because I think what it really misses is that one of the most important things for our mental health and well-being long term are our relationships is our association to other people there's a neuroscientist called Lisa Feldman Barrett she's fantastic and she says the best thing for your nervous system is another person 
but also the worst thing for your nervous system is another person. And so what I really, and, and what I worry about in terms of this aspect of self-care, which is like, sometimes you just need to be by yourself. Like, sure, but you can, do not neglect or do not throw your relationships on the fire in the name of self-care because long-term, I think that's gonna do you more harm than good. And so what I would say is probably for everything that we've been talking about tonight, which is really about the part which is personal responsibility and the part that is about the things that you can do. First of all, only 30% of your health is really in your own hands. It's also about systems, education, access to healthcare, poverty, policy. That's the kind of bigger part of it. So please don't go away thinking that if you suffer with something in the next few months or years that it was because you weren't trying hard enough. We are part of complex systems. But also we so rely on other people to help balance our nervous systems and our emotional well-being. And so what I would probably say is don't try to do it by yourself. Don't think, hmm, should I just eat some more fish and go for a walk? <laughs> I think the thing to do would probably be to call a friend and say, I'm having a really rough time or can we go for a walk or can I, you know, find that connection because it is the strength of your relationship, which is the biggest key to how well you will remain over the long term. Mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> that was fascinating. Thank you, as always. I mean, I always have so many more questions to ask <laughs> and I just can't ever get through them all. But I do want to leave five minutes just to open it up to the floor for any questions that you might have for Kimberly right now. We've got probably five and minutes. And I'll try to speed talk. <laughs> yes. Can I just re-say that for mm, anyone who's sure. listening, not live. So supplements, omega-3. Are they as powerful? No, no, I wouldn't tell you what's the first. <laughs> Are they as powerful in supplement form or in fish form? I think in, well, it depends. If, say, you're vegan or vegetarian and you're not getting them from anywhere else, then that is your option and it's probably the best option for you. But in general, because our food, and we evolved eating food, whole foods that come in a matrix with other vitamins and minerals, other compounds, that, we, that work in synergy that we don't really understand yet. For, so for example, with omega-3 fatty acids, there are some lovely studies about how they can protect the brain, but actually when you combine them with B vitamins, you get an even stronger protection against brain atrophy. So it's this kind of working in synergy of these nutrients. So omega-3s come packaged with some B vitamins in the form of fish, which won't, they won't come with in the form of a supplement. So food first is going to be better. The whole food is going to be better. And a supplement is really to fill the gaps, I think. What do you think, Sarah? Literally on point, food first. <laughs> yeah, well, I, yeah, they've got more questions <laughs> at the end. So the question is, how is meat important for our diet? Is that in relationship to protein or just meat overall? Meat overall. How important is meat in our diets? So, I mean, the caveat is that my, my master's was on brain health. So I can't talk generally for protein in, you know, for muscle hypertrophy and, and things like that. And really the evidence is a little bit 
mixed. So for example, there are some studies that suggest that vegetarians have a higher rate of depression and anxiety than non-meat eaters. That is slightly confounded by the possibility, by, well, by the fact that most vegetarians are women and women have a higher risk of depression anyway. So could it be just that we're, that's an artifact of that? Or the possibility that perhaps when people start to feel depressed, they try to remedy it themselves and cut out meat. And so we get a correlation in that way. But there is a question about whether certain nutrients that are found predominantly in meat, like vitamin B12, which is a really important brain healthy nutrient, might be part of this association between low red meat intake and increased risk of depression. On the other hand, there are studies that find that vegetarians have a lower risk of stress or are most stress resilient. But again, that's slightly confounded by the possibility that vegetarians eat more leafy green vegetables, which are full of magnesium, which help to maintain better brain health. It's not very clear, but what seems to be the case is that there is, in the, in the context of a healthy diet, eating meat isn't bad for your brain, is what we can say. You know, it isn't the case that eating meat will make you depressed or anything like that. But we need to think about the context of that meat consumption. What is the quality of the meat? Are we talking about a lean steak or are we talking about a sausage? Is it coming with a side of salad or is it coming in a highly refined bun? How often are we eating? You know, all of that sort of stuff. So it's a bit of a controversial area, but there's there's no reason to believe that an omnivorous diet that includes lean, good quality sources of meat is bad for you or bad for your brain. And possibly it might actually protect, be protective in terms of depression. Two more. So let's go with you first. Okay, so question is, just repeating, what, <laughs> what do you feel about manuscript? Man, I can't say the word. Can you help me out here? Manifestation. It's pure dyslexia here. This is why I eat a lot of omega-3s. <laughs> Do you believe it works? So, I've written a post that kind of references this. I think it's a very complex sociological question. So, I don't think there's anything wrong in thinking that sometimes things work out for you. I think that's a pretty, it's quite a nice approach. To, it's a better approach to, to life than things aren't going to work out for me. I think there is a survivor bias in the issue of manifestation. So, for example, the people who think they get what they asked for shout about it. The people who don't get the things that they asked for stay quiet. <laughs> And so we never really know about all the people who've been manifesting a new house who didn't get it, right? <laughs> Is the second part of that. I think, I think manifestation law of attraction has arisen almost to replace traditional religion because I think we have an absence of meaning in our modern society. And I think it leaves a gap for people to know where they fit in the cosmos and what sense to make of where we are. And it's almost as if we have too much science now to be able to say, well, it's God's plan or, you know, that I'm gonna go to heaven. So we kind of take a little bit of science and go, hmm, quantum mechanics, but then make it spiritual. So I feel like it's a kind of hodgepodge of a kind of, modern society trying to fill a, a religious gap. And I also wonder about how it has arisen in parallel to capitalism 
in as far as in our previous traditional religious context, whether those are the Abrahamic faiths, like Judaism, Christianity, or Islam, or Hinduism or Buddhism, most of the central tenets talk about how to treat other people. Love thy neighbor, you know, don't steal, be kind, be generous. Think about your actions in this life so that you can have a good afterlife. But most of the tenants have something. In Sikhism, there's a, you know, a, a huge tradition of, of feeding the hungry and service. There's lots, you know, all of these ancient religions have had that aspect as part of their core tenets. And I think it's very interesting, at least, that this form of spirituality is really quite self-serving because we're talking about manifesting things for ourselves. A new house, a better job, a flat stomach, uh, you know, that it seems to be quite interestingly, quite a neoliberal capitalist form of spirituality. And so it just, I just wonder. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> um, last question. <laughs> um, Wait, so, we repeat, we repeat the question. So relationships, you kind of ended the podcast by saying there are really core cool parts of looking after our mental health. However, you are worried about maybe overdoing that part of it and overdosing on the social <laughs> side of things. Is that possible? Is it bad for your health? Or is she... Is she winning? <laughs> You're like, yeah, someone. So I, I guess I would go back to that quote, you know, the best thing for your nervous system is other people, but it's also the worst thing. Essentially, you are going to be best placed to, to make a judgment on that. First of all, different people will have different thresholds. So an introvert is going to have a, a much lower threshold for social interaction than an extrovert and meet, need much more time for recovery after a social interaction than an extrovert will do. And sometimes we move between those two positions but understanding where you are broadly is quite helpful i think it also matters who you're hanging out with <laughs> is it people who you feel relaxed with safe with that you can be yourself with which is going to be a very different emotional experience to being with a group of people who you feel anxious about feel that you have to put on a mask with that you're kind of pretending and trying to fit in that's going to be actually quite draining for you and it's actually going to take you away from the things that are good about social interaction which is about feeling like you can relax feeling like you're accepted that's the thing the thing about social interaction is someone knows me in that kind of intimate way. Like they know who I am. They know me and they accept me, <laughs> which, is, which is also quite nice. And that, that they will be there for me if I ever needed anything. Those are the kind of parts that really make social interaction so important. So that even if someone couldn't genuinely help you in an emergency, like say you needed 500 pounds all of a sudden, maybe your friend couldn't give that money to you, but they could be there and support you and talk you through it. And, and that would just lower your level of stress. So I guess what I would say is, how are these social interactions leaving you feeling when you get home? Do you feel better or do you feel worse? Do you feel pressure to be there? And maybe a sense of judgment if you weren't there? Is it, is it conditional? Do you feel that you're in a group of people or groups of people who are accepting of you? Or do you feel like you're having to kind of put on a persona. Those are going to be the things that indicate whether the social situations that you're finding yourself in are beneficial for you or otherwise. 
We've had a lovely social interaction tonight <laughs> on this podcast. Kimberly, thank you so much. To just finish off, please tell everyone where they can find you. Because I know people are going to go on like, research you and find you on Instagram and your website can you share this with everyone yes probably the best place to hang out with me is Instagram where I am at food and psych so and all spelled out and then if you go to my website which is kimberlywilson.co.uk you have spelled my name wrong board um <laughs> massively dyslexic as you've already probably known if you followed me Very so it's sorry. Kimberly with an l-e-y so Kimberly with an l-e-y kimberlywilson.com and there you've got the links to my podcasts um, resources so sometimes with the podcast I do some resources that you can download there's a resource from the book that you can download general chit chat and nonsense but Instagram is the, is the main place and that's where you'll find that's where I kind of update most often thank you I mean the, the title was written backwards before you guys came in. So thank <laughs> God that I noticed that. Um, but guys, thank you so much for coming. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Oh my God. It's the first time I said that. <laughs> Merry Christmas. And um, thank you for being such supporters of the Be Well and the podcast. And I really hope that we can do this again soon. Yeah, it's been lovely. Really, it's been really, lovely. really nice. Hey, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, guys. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers to you. Happy Before you go, I have something new to tell you about. There's brand new bonus content waiting for you with every new guest I speak to. These are exclusively for my inner circle of Apple subscribers. To listen now, head to the Live Well, Be Well show page on Apple Podcasts, where you can activate your free trial and you can enjoy the podcast without adverts.